Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Before we start today, a big thank you to my new Patreons this week. That's Maggie James, Adrian Simpson and also to Carol Dixon who increased her support this week. Thank you all so much. I so appreciate it. There are nine bonus episodes to listen to and bonus episode 10 is coming this week. One thing I've meant to do in the past, but of course I keep forgetting, is to recommend some other podcasts that I listen to. So rather than the news of the day today, I'm going to take the time to recommend that you listen to three shows. The first one is the number one UK true crime podcast, the one that inspired me to start this show, and that's They Walk Among Us. I'm sure most of you listen, but if you don't, please do. The second one that I can't recommend highly enough is The Minds of Madness. Every time I listen to this show, I love it. It's a great podcast. Please go and listen today. And finally, a friend of the show, the true crime enthusiast who's written some great episodes for me and also The Minds of Madness. He's now started his own podcast and it's fab. So please do take the time to go and listen to the true crime enthusiast podcast. Last week, as you recall... We left our story in the aftermath of three bombings carried out by that right-wing Nazi loser, David Copeland, culminating in the bombing of the Admiral Duncan pub in Soho in April 1999, which killed three people. Andrea Dykes was 27 and she was four months pregnant, John Light, 32, and Nick Moore, 31. David Morley was behind the bar of the pub at the time of the attack and he suffered burns but otherwise seemed okay. So we're going to carry on with David's story straight after a quick word about today's sponsors, WordPress. Do you have a business, a blog, or even a podcast? If so, how are people going to find your small business? When you create a website on wordpress.com, you make it easier for your customers to find you. That's why I have a WordPress website. Your business needs an online home, My business needs an online home, which is why I chose WordPress. Your business needs an online home. It needs a WordPress.com website. The great thing is you don't need any experience setting up a website as WordPress guides you through the process from start to finish. Although they look after the technical stuff, if you do get stuck, they've got a support team 24-7 able to help you. And at WordPress, all the plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan. And those plans start at just $4 a month. So get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to wordpress.com slash UK True Crime to create your website and find the plan that's right for you. That's wordpress.com slash UK True Crime for 15% off your brand new website. wordpress.com slash UK True Crime. I've got to quickly mention the music, haven't I? So number one was that that awful video for Call On Me. You recall it? All the intellectuals of you out there? Okay, I think that'll suffice for the music today. Let's get on with today's story. David Morley was given the option to take some time out from work, but he wanted to continue working at the pub after it was reopened. However, a week after the reopening, he burst into tears when he opened the door to a group of Asian teenagers who'd brought a sympathy card from families in Brick Lane the subject of another of Copeland's attacks. I stood there crying in front of them, he said. Although physically he suffered only from burns from the attack, 
he increasingly started to suffer flashbacks and panic attacks. But as is always the way after such an atrocity, life on the surface seemed to get back to normal for David, enjoying his work and the company of his many friends in London and beyond. But underneath the fun exterior, friends were worried about the effects the pub bombing had upon him. One friend said, After the nail bomb, he went to the hospital every day to see those who'd been injured. He would talk to them for hours, holding their hands. There was a loss of pain, but he would listen to every one of them, buoying them up and trying to bring some relief to the horrors they faced. He coped with everything on his own. On the outside, he gave off this happy exterior to everyone, but I know some of those memories haunted him. He never had counselling, and he kept this amazing smile all the way through the aftermath, making sure that everyone else was okay. After the attack, David Morley was made manager of the Admiral Duncan pub, and to many in the community, David was the face and the spirit of the Admiral Duncan. He was the Admiral Duncan. Everyone loved him, everyone knew cinders. But David was finding it increasingly hard to cope. Close friends noticed he was a little down, he was drinking more than previously, and they feared that he was partying even harder to hide what he was feeling inside. It really left its mark on him, said another friend. I think he couldn't take the pressure of running a pub anymore and wanted to take a job as an assistant manager. And this is just what he did when he moved west and left the Admiral Duncan to become assistant manager at Brompton's in Earl's Court in London's West End. And he moved into a room above another of the firm's bars, the Birdcage, in nearby Chiswick. It was Friday the 29th of October, 2004. It was just another Friday, just another Friday like when the Admiral Duncan pub was bombed. Innocent people all over the UK and the world had plans to meet friends, to have fun and enjoy time in the wonderful city of London. As you know if you've spent time here, London's a superb place for a great night out, whatever you want, even traditional jazz for some of you. But sadly, not everyone had such innocent plans. Instead, They had plans to spoil the fun of others. This included a young gang from South London. Chelsea Omani was just 14 years old and part of the gang. She liked hanging out on the wasteland close to St Thomas's Hospital, which, as you probably know, looks out over the Thames towards Westminster. There she played games of dare, knocking a football about and fighting with rival gangs. Her parents had been heroin addicts, and aged three or four, She was used to seeing her mum injecting herself with that horrible drug. Life was such a hopeless situation for her that she found herself wandering around the streets of London completely unsupervised. For her own safety, she was sent to live with her aunt on the Ethelred estate in Kennington, South London. At school, teachers would call occasional mild lateness and impertinence, but after letters were sent to her aunt, that improved. More generally... Chelsea was regarded as an able student who loved reading. She did not like talking about herself, but hey, what teenager does? That's the right of middle-aged men who just love talking about themselves, don't they? But in one-to-one situations, she could be thoughtful and compassionate. At least one teacher received a Christmas card from her. As one of her school friends puts it, nobody could work Chelsea out. Sometimes she worked hard at school and was pleasant and polite. 
but other times she seemed to delight in making friends with the roughest, most violent kids, and she behaved appallingly. But she was very creative. Her graffiti nickname was Zobs, and she was really very good. Also in this gang was David Blenman, who was 16 and lived in a neighbouring block to Chelsea. He'd never met his father and was looked after by his grandma and aunt before being sent to Barbados, although he later returned back to London. Indulged at home and misbehaving at school, the family frequently argued with teachers about his behaviour as he moved from school to school. He picked up several convictions for street crime on the way. Another gang member, Darren Case, 17, lived with his wheelchair-bound grandparents. He suffered from ADHD and had not been to school since he was 13. Described as angry and aggressive, he was said to be a psychologically damaged individual who in several ways had a wretched upbringing. And then Reese Sargent, aged 20. He used to attend a special needs school and he was the leader of the gang. I think at this stage it's important to pause quickly just to stop and consider why young people on the estate were so drawn to gangs back then and, well, now as well. The four blocks built in the late 60s, early 70s that made up the Ethelred estate were scary places for many residents. In 2006, an article on the Ethelred estate was published in the Telegraph newspaper where residents described how gangs terrorised the area. One lady, who'd run a shop there for 20 years, said it was not uncommon for local youths to carry weapons openly. It's very sad what's happening here. The area is full of gangs of youths and undesirables. I close my shop at 5.30pm or earlier every day and go straight home. I don't tend to go out at night at all, as it's too frightening. The gangs here have no respect. They carry baseball bats, carving knives and even guns. One charity director, working with youngsters on London's council estate, said... Imagine you're a nine-year-old boy living here. You see these groups of older boys. They seem to be tough. They seem to be having a good time. Nobody interferes with them. You want to be a man, and these appear to be men to you. In some of the gangs, some of the slightly older ones have already been in prison. To the kids on the street, prison has almost become a badge of honour. It's almost getting to the point that you have to go to prison to get respect. All their talk is about fucking people up. There's no notion of conflict resolution other than battering people. Violence is deeply ingrained in their culture of respect. They have to take people on just because what is said might be disrespectful to them. They have to batter them. They have to be in charge. And to be in charge, they have to be physically violent. Living with her aunt in the hope of a better life hadn't worked out for Chelsea and she was taken into the care of the local authority. It was from her foster home each Friday that she would venture out with Sergeant's gang. They attacked innocent people just for fun. The gang had done the same thing for six months, gaining strength and confidence from each other with each attack and filming the most serious assaults. Chelsea's diaries showed the way the gang were operating. They graduated from playing truant to running together on the streets of South London, wearing hoods to cover their faces and using their mobile phones to record acts of violence to replay them to their friends. This is so-called happy slapping, remember that craze? Which they enhanced with additional violence. Her diary for October the 3rd, 2004 is typical. It said, and excuse my reading, her writing verbatim, Them lot banged up some old harmless man which I think is bad man. 
even though I was laughing afterwards. Bored and with nothing else to do, the gang members went out that night purely to attack innocent passers-by on the busy and vibrant South Bank early on 30th of October 2004. Do you know that part of the South Bank from pretty much Blackfriars Bridge in the east over to the London Eye in the west? I've spent a lot of time down there. I used to work there straight after university. It's a great place. It's vibrant. It's full of whole different crowds, lots of tourists having fun as well. It's that sort of place, if you've been there, you'll know. When you, when you go out for a night, you've got that feeling that anything is possible. It's that real vibe of excitement. It's a great place to hang out. But in the early hours of that morning, in a 56-minute orgy of violence that mirrored a scene from Anthony Burgess's novel A Clockwork Orange, they assaulted eight people in five separate attacks around the South Bank. Seven people who were just out to enjoy themselves and one homeless man quietly sleeping, harming nobody. God, it's pathetic, isn't it? The gang videoed all the attacks as sharing that gave them extra credibility with the other gangs in the area. I mean, seriously? And how unlucky for the innocent people they stumbled upon, just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The gang all dressed in hooded tops, but marked out their individuality in different ways. Case carried a pair of rice flails, and always had the left arm of his hoodie rolled up. Chelsea wore large hoop earrings and carried the mobile phone. They would plot attacks at Case's home in Kennington, South London, and they'd drink heavily before they went out for the night. It was like a little cult thing, where they were all gaveled around a cauldron. They would say, who are we going to beat up tonight? Are we beating up druggies? Are we beating tramps? Or are we going out to beat up people in the street? David Dobson, 24, was an actor walking home from the old Vic Theatre. He was asked the time, which was the gang's signal to attack, and was then kicked and beaten as he walked home at 2.30am. The second of these attacks that night was on two innocent men sitting on a bench near Hungerford Bridge, close to Waterloo Station. One man was Alistair Whiteside, the other was the man, the centre of our story, David Morley, now aged 37. They were sitting on a bench, they'd been eating and drinking cider, when Alistair noticed a group walking along the river. They gave a brief acknowledgement, as you do. And then Chelsea told the two men that they were filming a documentary about happy slapping, and then she added brightly, start posing. And without warning the attack began. Both men were soon on the floor, trying to protect their heads as the kicks and punches reined in, over their heads, their ribs and all over their body. Alistair recalls seeing that one of his assailants seemed to be getting enjoyment out of it and was smiling and laughing. He looked over and saw David sat against hoardings near the bench. A girl, who he now knows was Chelsea, ran up and kicked his head like a football. She went over to David. She pulled her foot back and was kicking him just like a football, very hard to the head, two or three times. In total, his attackers inflicted 44 different injuries on him, and he suffered a ruptured spleen and massive blood loss. Once the gang had finished with the two men, they carried on with their series of indiscriminate attacks. Another man was hit over the head with a bottle as he sat in Jubilee Gardens, just back from the London Eye. And the last attack was on homeless Wayne Miller, sleeping rough near Waterloo Station. When they'd finished, the gang was seen running off, whooping in celebration. CCTV captured this attack, and it shows that Chelsea was filming it on her mobile phone. 
After the attacks, the gang went back to the estate to watch the videos they'd taken that evening, laughing together as they watched the horrific footage. David's parents received the phone call we all dread, telling them their son had been badly injured in an attack. Despite immediately travelling to London by train, they arrived at the hospital moments after David Morley died from a heart attack brought on by his injuries. The ferocity of the attack is illustrated by the comments of the pathologist, who said that the injuries were more consistent with those seen after a car accident or someone who had fallen from a great height. David Morley was just 37 years old. He'd been in the wrong place at the wrong time when the Admiral Duncan pub had been targeted by David Copeland and again when the gang had been looking to inflict random violence on strangers. Over a thousand people attended a vigil in commemoration of David's life at St Anne's Church Soho on the 5th of November 2004. Speeches were given by friends and those who could not get into the church due to the overcrowding stood in the street with candles. It was an amazing, poignant sight. One friend said, This is the second time he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but for all of us here today, he will be in the right place at the right time, which is in a very special place in all our hearts. The London Gay Men's Chorus also sang in his memory. As they did so, a memorial book was passed through the crowd. Later friends held hands as a song titled Cinder's Song was sung, which was written by a busker. A moment of silence was also observed, and at the end of the vigil, a crowd of over a 100 people went to Hungerford Bridge, the location of the fatal attack, and placed flowers and candles at a police board appealing for witnesses. Initially, police feared it was a homophobic attack, as where David was killed was close to the gay nightclub Heaven. But this wasn't the case. It was just violence for the sake of violence. Police moved quickly to bring in the gang. They weren't the brightest, even though they were the big men on the street. A mobile phone taken from a victim of the attacks was found at the home of one of the gang, and two specks of blood on a trainer found in the room with the phone had been linked to another of the victims. I think we have to accept that one of the gang case must have a particularly small penis based on his actions. While on remand, Case bragged about the killing, telling a class of youths at Feltham Young Offenders Institution how he jumped on David Morley until his head had split open. Goodness gracious, doesn't this sort of detail just make you stick to the stomach? What an idiot. When the case went to court, the defendants denied murder, conspiracy to rob and conspiracy to cause actual bodily harm. Jurors watched the sickening CCTV footage of the four defendants attacking Wayne Miller. As the four boys violently attacked their helpless victim, Chelsea could be clearly seen filming the attack on her mobile phone, although she denied this, and no evidence was actually found on her phone. Chelsea denied filming, saying she'd just been checking video footage and pictures on one of her co-defendants' phones rather than filming the attack itself. But of course the defence was impressed with that excuse, saying, of course you can look at pictures on a mobile phone, but it seems incongruous to do so, just feet from the attack. Faced with insurmountable video evidence from CCTV, the gang admitted that they were the people involved, but they used a cutthroat defence, blaming each other for the violence and trying to play down their own involvement. In contrast to the gang was the dignity of David's father, he said about his son, David was respectful to all, 
easy to get on with and generous to a fault. He had a lovely smile and a talent for making others happy. The defence continued to give mitigating reasons why the gang members had been involved. Outlining Chelsea's dire background, her QC said that she'd been shown little affection in her life. He quoted a teacher as saying that she was capable of warmth and compassion, but she could not easily express it. While on remand, she hurled a TV at a wall. And when officers went to her home to arrest her, they found her sobbing in her bedroom. Because she was so young, she was the only gang member allowed to sit in the well of the court. A social worker held her arm. Blenman had previous convictions for muggings. His defence QC said a social report about him was bleak reading. He never knew his father, was looked after by his grandma and his aunt, and he'd had behavioural and emotional problems since nursery school. And then we come on to our friend Tiny Case. Case was intellectually immature and vulnerable to peer pressure, it said. Sergeant's defence was that he was deeply ashamed. Bit late now, isn't it? He came from a close family of law-abiding citizens, but he had learning difficulties, a speech impediment, and suffered issues at school. In January 2006, Brian Barker, the Common Sergeant of London, jailed David Blenman, Darren Case and Rhys Sargent for 12 years each, after a jury found them guilty of manslaughter and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm. Chelsea Omani, who by now was 16, was sentenced to just eight years because of her age. The judge said that the gang had become obsessed with what they called happy slapping and had been blind to the suffering of others. He told them, you are all old enough to understand the realities and the consequences of your actions. You sought enjoyment from humiliation and pleasure from the infliction of pain. You behaved with total indifference to those who crossed your path in the heart of London and no citizen should be in fear of or subjected to this. The jury finding the gang guilty of manslaughter, rather than murder, shocked many. Victims of Crime Trust director Norman Brennan said he was astounded that the jury returned a manslaughter verdict. He said, The violence used against David Morley was so extreme that the probable outcome could result in his death, which is murder. None of the attackers in this case will serve more than six years in detention. This does not reflect the enormity of their crime. David's parents, Geoffrey and Doreen, attended every day of the trial. In a statement, Geoffrey said he watched the unrepentant defendants file in and out of court every day. He added, The attack on our David was a sustained, brutal assault by a number of assailants. He died from injuries later the same day, and no sentence will bring our son back to life, but at least the rest of society will be safer while these dangerous misfits are kept off the streets. Alistair Whiteside, the man who was chatting to David on a bench by the Thames when they were attacked, said, I've lost my best friend of six years. I watched him being killed and that will live with me for the rest of my life. As the sentences were read out, a relative in the public gallery swore at the judge and shouted, Are you dumb or something? And this ridiculous behaviour continued outside by friends and family of the gang. Outside the Old Bailey, one man drew a finger across his throat as a threat and another idiot said, My cousin got 12 years because of your faggot friend. Finally, police had to be called when relatives of the convicted further threatened David Morley's father and friends. It just makes you think that they live on a different planet from us, doesn't it? I mean, what is wrong with these people? 
One close friend of David expressed her sympathy for David's parents, saying, They'll be devastated. David was very close to his parents and chatted to them all the time. I feel so sorry for them. These last few months were a turning point for him. He cut down on his drinking and changed jobs, and he seemed so much more happy in himself. His smile did not hide that inner sadness anymore. I cannot believe that at this turning point of his life, after all he went through, he's been murdered by a bunch of crazed teenagers. It's such an unbelievable waste of an amazing guy. In March 2010, Chelsea was a free woman again after serving just four years of her sentence. The Sun newspaper tracked her down in Bedford, describing how she enjoyed a trip out from her probation hostel after being released on licence. They saw Chelsea, now 20, laughing and joking with friends as they wandered around shops eating fast food. But when the son asked her if she felt justice had been done, she snapped, I don't know what you are talking about. And when they probed if she would like to send a message of sympathy to David Morley's family, she ran off. The dignity of David's parents was once more in evidence when they commented on this story with the following. These people did some terrible things. My wife and I didn't speak about the case at the time while it was happening and we want to remain quiet about it now. But he did add, I hope that Chelsea can find a new bunch of friends and start rebuilding her life. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's a shocking tale, isn't it? And my heart just goes out to David's family and friends who lost such a special man in such violent circumstances. I guess when you hear about the backgrounds of the gang of murderers, some of you will have sympathy and argue that they were the product of their circumstances and culture. Others will say that's a load of old nonsense and we all have choices about what we do and how we behave. I'm certainly in the second camp. And really for me, this story has just made me so utterly angry. I'm just angry about it. How dare these people go out to just cause violence on others, innocent people having fun, just enjoying themselves. Oh, so angry. As I've said a number of times on this podcast, if we are murdered, the evidence points to it being at the hands of someone we know, probably our partner. But to be murdered in a random attack, just for sport almost, is beyond comprehension. Poor David Morley was in the wrong place and the wrong time on two separate occasions. And tragically, the second time, he paid the ultimate price. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime. I hope you've enjoyed both parts of this story. To discuss what you've heard today with others who share your interest in UK True Crime, please head to our Facebook group. You'll be very, very welcome. And if you'd like to support the show and access the nine bonus episodes, the 10th is coming this week with other exclusive content too, for just £3 a month, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Go on, you know you want to. So that's all for me for now. So until we speak again, cheerio and remember, stay classy. <laughs>